Out of the Vat. Hello and welcome to Out of the Vat, a podcast where we talk to philosophers about their work and about their lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. I'm Ewan Rogers. Today I'll be speaking to Professor Richard Ashcroft. Richard is Professor of Bioethics and Deputy Head of the Department of Law at Queen Mary University of London. He's worked on ethics in biomedical research and in public health and was recently a member of the Working Party on Human Genome Editing at the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. Richard's currently working on utopias and on ethics in artificial intelligence and data science. Okay, can you tell me a bit about what you're working on at the moment? Okay, so uh, I'm a bioethicist, which means that I get asked to think about ethical issues relating to life sciences, medicine and public health. And uh, I've been doing that for about 25 years now. And the bulk of my work has been on medical research ethics. So ethics in clinical trials, ethics in genetics. Um, I recently was on the Nuffield Council on Bioethics working group on human genome editing, uh, which was about two years of work, which was really interesting. And um, in light of all that, I started about 10 years ago to get interested in Utopia. Um, I got interested in utopia because a lot of the things that people like to talk about in my field um, seem to me to be, in one way or another, utopian projects. So people talk about human enhancement. Uh, They talk about uh, genetic engineering. They talk about using drugs that will improve your mood or your attention or make you smarter. Uh, They talk about altering the brain. And um, it seemed to me that what was interesting about that was that people didn't acknowledge that these were utopian ideas. They put them very much in terms of being medical treatments or, or things that individuals might want to do to make themselves live slightly better or slightly longer or slightly happier. Um, but it seemed to me fairly obvious that this was socially meaningful. It was, it was projecting a vision of what society should be like and how human beings should live in society. Mm-hmm. So that combination of thinking about uh, how we could improve ourselves as a means to improving society, while at the same time erasing the social, pretending that it wasn't about social change, struck me as being really interesting. And in the intervening 10 years, uh, I think that idea has become more mainstream. Uh, We talk about it a lot now in the context of Silicon Valley and the tech world, Uh, these ways of, of, of changing things which are supposed to be for individual benefit and about individual preferences, but actually seem to involve quite dramatic social transformation outside of any control, Uh, dressed up in language of liberty so that we don't have to worry about it uh, as a a sort of social change. Uh, It's just what people want, isn't it? Um, Well, we're starting to see pushback against that now. So that's what I've been thinking about. Um, And it's proved to be quite slippery. So although I've been working on it for about 10 years, I'm I'm no no nearer the end. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so what, what... In your view, what distinguishes something that's a true medical treatment from a medical treatment from a utopian idea dressed up as a medical treatment? Ah, well, that's a, I mean, it is a good question because uh, a lot of people do try to distinguish between therapy and enhancement. Mm-hmm. They try to say that there's a 
clear distinction between those two things. And I don't think that works because a lot of treatments can be used in an enhancing sort of way. Okay. Um, and also, I mean, a good example might be the treatments that people sometimes give people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, which turn out to be quite helpful in focusing your attention even if you don't have ADHD and are sometimes used by undergraduate students who are worried about doing well in their exams. Um, and coffee has a slightly similar effect. So um, if you think of coffee uh, as being something that both helps you when you've got a bit of a fuzzy head in the morning, um, not sure that never happens to you, but, no, no, no. Um, but also as uh, something that even when you're uh, perfectly well in yourself, you can take it to, as, a, as a recreational substance that, you know, enjoy a coffee with a friend or just for the simple enjoyment of, of the flavour. And I think that can be true of lots of things that we try to put on one side or another of the therapy enhancement boundary. There's definitely a difference in intent. Yeah, sure. But I think one of the really important things that moral philosophy teaches us is that intent is nothing like as simple uh, as we yeah. like to think in daily life and, and in many ways not all that useful uh, in drawing moral distinctions. So I think you can point to a sort of utopian significance of some of these treatments which is independent of how an individual may be using it. Um, so it's, I like to think of it as, as a sort of diagnostic of what people think is wrong with the world okay. and how sometimes people project outward onto the world things that are worried about themselves or inward to themselves things that are actually problems with the way we live now. And so I think a lot of the, the interest of these sort of medical attempts to build utopias are exactly that, that because in a way we've given up thinking about social reform and social utopias uh, for reasons which alumni of uh, the London School of Economics probably have drilled into them that were written down by Karl Popper in the 40s. Mm -hmm. um, we nevertheless think we can reform ourselves. Um, so a lot of the things that people worry about, I want to be smarter, I want to be more attractive, I want to be live longer, I want to be healthier. Well, they have a sense in their own right, and they would be recognisable to a Greek or Roman philosopher two and a half thousand years ago. They also tell us something about the nature of work under capitalism. Mm -hmm. you know, I want to be a better employee. I yep. want to be less at risk of getting sacked. I want to improve my prospects in my career. So the, the, those two things go together. You have the sort of social diagnostic of what this all means, and you also have the individual diagnostic of why this, in, why this particular person might be worried about these things. What's the most controversial philosophical position you've ever held? I don't go around courting controversy. There are people who... Uh, work in my field who sometimes I get the feeling what they really want to do is just say something really striking uh, without regard to whether it's actually true because it will get them some attention 
and th there is a certain philosophical style that involves that. Um, controversial opinions. The nearest I think I can get is that I think that human dignity is a useful concept. Okay. And in some parts of the philosophical world, particularly continental Europe, that wouldn't be considered controversial no. because they organise a lot of moral philosophy, legal philosophy, political philosophy around the concept of human dignity. You can find it in Kant. But in bioethics, it's, it's not a very fashionable concept because it tends to be associated with, with certain doctrines which are linked to particular political positions. And so a lot of people who write about human dignity in bioethics are trying to say, well, it, does, it either doesn't mean anything or it's just a synonym for personal autonomy. Right, okay. um, and so we don't need it. We, just, we can just talk about autonomy. But I do think it's useful because it allows us to reflect on things about the value of human life and the nature of what matters in human life in a way that goes beyond autonomy. And that's partly because the concept of autonomy itself has been narrowed down to mere choice, mm -hmm. um, which is a bit misleading when you start to think politically. Um, but also because um, I think there are situations in which we want to be able to talk about the value of human life without needing to talk about whether somebody is a sort of rational and cognitively capable individual that goes beyond their ability to think and, and, and goes towards something like um, why we care about humans at all. Okay. What, what, what other than autonomy can be covered by dignity? Oh, ah, mmm, mmm. <laughs> See, I'm umming now. Ah. Ah, mm. So philosophers at this point scratch their heads and think, uh, and my beard isn't quite long enough to pull. Um, so I think what dignity does is it's a concept, a sort of foundational concept for saying uh, what it is about the human that makes it morally special. Now, that opens up as many problems as it solves. Um, we have to say, where does it come from? What's its metaphysical basis? Why humans and not other kinds of entity, be those animals, plants, ecosystems, robots, artificial intelligent computers? Um, but I think it's an orienting concept that allows us to start to say, well, the reason why we care about humans in this context is because of X, Y, and Z. And you can give examples where you spell it out uh, ostensively. So um, I take a lot of my philosophical cues from Wittgenstein. Okay. And Wittgenstein would say that you can't necessarily give a clear-cut analytical definition of a lot of philosophical concepts. You can just give examples and, and show what the family resemblances are between them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I would go with dignity. We talked about dignity in various contexts and then show how the word works. Okay, and which philosophical position have you changed your mind about? I have changed my mind about 
the nature and importance of rationality. And I have changed my mind about this on a number of occasions. <laughs> right, okay. So, um, to partly explain this is to say how I got into philosophy in the first place. So, um, like a lot of people, I got in, interested in philosophical questions out of religious questions. So, when I was a little boy, my household was fairly religious. Uh, I used to go to church a lot. I used to read the Bible in my family and sing all the hymns and so on. But when I was about 11, 12, I started to want to have philosophical reasons for all these things. Initially, as a way of sort of explaining them further, but then gradually um, I found that my interest in philosophy um, contradicted the religious beliefs I'd been raised in, and I became quite uh, aggressively secular. Um, and so the idea of reason as an account of how we believe certain things and what things it is reasonable to believe uh, seemed very important to me. Uh, I also was quite interested in mathematics, and I originally went to university to read mathematics, and I did that for two years before changing into philosophy. But all through my interest in mathematics, I kept running up against concepts that I couldn't understand. Like in physics, I couldn't understand what a force was supposed to be. Um, so I could do the equations, but I couldn't understand the models. I couldn't understand what it is this is supposed to be reflecting. Uh, so I started asking philosophical questions, and I asked my tutor, you know, um, I see there's a course in mathematical logic. Can I take it? And he said, well, the trouble with you, Ashcroft, is you think you'll take it, and it will teach you how to be logical, and it won't. <laughs> um, so I took the course and found that he was right. Um, so I, 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 I have been, at various points in my life, extremely interested in formal methods, in logic, in decision theory, uh, in statistics, um, and then every so often come up against the limits of what those things can do. Um, and the connection between my interest in reason as a way of thinking about religious faith and my interest in rationality as a, as a sort of decision procedure is, is that there is, a, there is, it seems to me, a disconnect between reason in the way that, say, continental thinkers like Kant think of it and rationality in the way that thinkers inspired by logic mathematics and economics think of it. And um, there's a tendency out there in the world, particularly um, people who are fans of um, the, sort of the new atheists, uh, who, who, want to, who want to say that they know what rationality is and rationality excludes, well, 90% of what most human beings think of. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that troubles me. So I alternate between being very, very interested in these things and wanting to understand them better and seeing how you can apply those methods. Um, so currently I'm interested in artificial intelligence and in, 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 in trying to understand what the new kind of our AI is and how it differs from what they call good old-fashioned AI. And uh, I'm being very sceptical that these things can actually do anything useful at all. So you cannot produce uh, a logical syntax which generates a novel of Henry James's, mm -hmm. which is so much the worse for logical syntax and so much the worse for Henry James. <laughs> yeah. 
So do you think philosophy has any practical import? I do. Um, I'm wary of people that think they can just take a philosophical theory and apply it. So there's, there's a sub-branch of philosophy called applied philosophy, uh, which I kind of wrestle with a bit um, because I don't think it's like applied maths or applied physics. It, it's, it's, but properly understood, applied philosophy is thinking philosophically about practical problems. And that's very much what I do. Um, my days of a the- as a theorist are long behind me. Um, I can't think sensibly about a problem unless I can understand it in practical terms. You know, what, w- how does this actually arise in someone's life right. or in a particular policy context or in medical practice? And that's partly because of the way my brain works. But it's also, I think, uh, a view I have about what it is to think philosophically about moral problems. Uh, You take the world as you find it and try to understand it. Um, There is quite a strong interest in my work in the relationship between ethics and politics and about what it is to make ethical recommendations in a practical setting where... Uh, certain possibilities are logically available, but not practically so, Mm -hmm. Um, and what that constraint means. So I've done work with lots of different um, public bodies over the years. I've worked with Enoughfield Council on bioethics, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I've worked on research ethics committees that govern clinical trials. I've worked on... um, I was involved with a an organisation which is defunct now called the Gene Therapy Advisory Committee. I've advised the Medical Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. I've done bits and pieces with, with international agencies as well. And in all those settings, um, what I have most enjoyed is being in a room with people from lots of different academic backgrounds and or none at all. Um, so I enjoy working with lay people, I enjoy working with sociologists, I enjoy working with doctors, and thinking about what the relationship between these disciplines is and what they teach us. Um, So there's a version of philosophy which I get quite cross with, which is all about thought experiments. And I I do think, why do thought experiments when you could talk to people who are doing actual experiments? Um, Be those in medicine or sociology or economics and, and quite a lot of my work has been doing that kind of interdisciplinary work. Now, I have philosophical colleagues who would be very sceptical about the value of that, and that's fine. Uh, but that's not what I do, because I, I like to do thinking in public. What's the most recent work of fiction you've read? What's the most recent work of fiction I have read? I am about a third of the way through a book by Richard Kelly called The Knives, which is a political novel uh, placing us in the mind of a Conservative Home Secretary mm-hmm. uh, and a week in his life uh, dealing with the sorts of problems that Home Secretaries have to deal with. And it's framed as a thriller, but it's I don't like thrillers. I, I don't get thrilled by thrillers. <laughs> I get slightly irritated by them. 
Uh, I find the formal constraints of the thriller genre annoying. I don't find the life of spies all that exciting, uh, and I don't like having my heart rate put up unnecessarily by a made-up story. But I will read Jack Reacher novels from time to time because they just work really well done. But this one has a a thriller framework to it, but it's really much more a reflection on the nature of political choice and the relationship between the private and the public person and what motivates people to take on public life and so on. And it's really interesting and really well done, so I I can recommend that. Uh, If you were to write a novel, what would it be about? So this is a really difficult question because... I read a a tremendous amount of fiction. I read fiction all the time. And I think part of the reason that fiction appeals to me is I'm not that good at reading other people's minds. And what novels allow me to do is to get into someone else's mind and try and figure out how they think that way and why that thing matters to them. Uh, So it's kind of dealing with the human race at arm's length. Um, And I thought about, well, should I write a novel? And I've come to the conclusion that no, because the reason why I read novels is because they can do something that I can't. So I can't write a novel because I can't do that kind of imagination well enough. Um, There are sort of experimental fictions which I could probably bring off, but I can't think why anyone else would want to read them. Um, It does sometimes occur to me that I should have a go at my own utopia, um, possibly in the form of a science fiction novel and so on. But uh, I think the problem is then that what I might end up writing is one of those, in style at least, it would be a bit like those 1950s scientific novels where you have you know, Professor X going around perorating about his views on the world and rather than an actual character that does things in situations and makes a plot work and so on. So I, I, I just don't... I don't think the world needs my novel, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favourite TV show? My favourite TV show... um, And I have to say, I watch very little TV. um, Mainly because when I get in of an evening, all I want to do is veg veg out. And and TV seems to demand my attention in a way that... (laughs) I don't particularly like. I'd rather absorb myself in a book where I'm under control of the experience. Um, But when I do watch TV, uh, a show I really enjoyed is uh, 2012, which becomes W1A, uh, which is a comedy sort of false reality TV show about bureaucracies. Because mm-hmm. after all, what is a university? <laughs> it's my life, basically, but it's set in the BBC instead of at my employer, or it's set at the Olympic Deliverance Authority, which is 2012. And you just imagine, yeah, this is how it's done. It's, it's very much like um, Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister, except bureaucracy and middle management rather than politicians and civil servants. Um, and I like things like that. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> I wanted to be a train driver. Fair, fair enough, yeah. I still want to be a train driver. Yeah, OK. In fact, if somebody offered me the job as a train driver tomorrow, <laughs> I'd chuck it all in, and you wouldn't see me. I'd be gone. I'd, I have the best thing I have done in my personal life, uh, apart from, you know, 
marrying my wife and looking after my son and so on. Was that for about three years ago, for my uh, birthday, my wife got me a day train driving experience where I got to drive a Deltic diesel engine. It's every, <laughs> everything I ever dreamed of. It was just the best. It's 100 tonnes of heavy metal. It was brilliant. <laughs> I didn't know such a thing existed. Oh, yeah. So how far did you get to drive it? Oh, it was up and down a preserved railway line, the Epping and Ongar Railway in um, northeast London, just yeah, yeah, near no, Epping no, Forest. Just, yeah, yeah. So it was only about 20 miles there and back. But to, it's, it's the way some people talk about riding horses, you know, this big, powerful animal between your legs. It's just, you know, let's not make any bones about it. Yes, it was a big boy's dream. <laughs> yes. Uh, but... It was everything I wanted it to be. Yeah. I mean, some people like the idea of steam trains, but I, I was born about two years after they stopped running steam trains on the railway. So I didn't grow up with them, and it's not my, it's not my fantasy, but I, when I was a boy, diesel engines particularly were, you know, they were prevalent, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I always liked the look of them and the sound of them and the smell of them. And, uh, yeah, finally I got to drive one. Do you know why we're doing it full-time, may Take the magic out of it somewhat. <laughs> I like the idea of learning how to do something practical, like, you know, just strip it down and... Obviously, you need a whole team of people mm -hmm. with a diesel engine. It's not like a little car, but just strip it down and put it back together again and, and make sure the machine tools are working properly. And, and yeah, I like the idea of that. And, and um, it's so different from what I have spent my entire life doing. Yeah, yeah. I've spent my entire life in my head. Yes. And uh, philosophers have started to talk about this, about the importance of working with your hands and the relationship between hand work and brain work. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I find it quite interesting. What do you like about being a philosopher? What do I like about being a philosopher? I genuinely am interested in ideas and I like learning about new things. And philosophy is both, in its own right, a field which introduces me to new ideas and there are always new arguments to consider. But also, because of the kind of philosophy I do, I have the opportunity to learn about new scientific discoveries and theories and so on that, that are genuinely fascinating. So I love that aspect of the, the life of the mind. Uh, when I told my mum I was going to do a PhD, she was really quite disappointed. She says, oh, God, you're going to be an eternal student, aren't you? And I was like, what is the problem here? And uh, in a sense, that's where I still am, even though I've been doing this a long time now. So that's what I, I really do enjoy about philosophy, is, is, is the ideas. And talking to people about them. It's, it's, it, people get quite excited talking about philosophical ideas, and, and that's good. What don't you like about being a philosopher? What don't I like about being a philosopher? There are some things about the culture of philosophical work I don't like. Um, there are certain styles of doing philosophy that positively annoy me. Um, that sort of mid-century Anglo-American style where people are incredibly aggressive about fine distinctions, 
that they claim to be able to perceive directly through intuition or their mastery of the English language. I mean, having said that I'm very influenced by Wittgenstein, he had a lot to answer for in terms of what his successors went on to do with his work. Now, that's true of a lot of philosophers, of course. Um, I don't like the seemingly endemic sexism of academic philosophy. Um, I don't like its the Anglo-American particularly uh, attitude to the history of philosophy. I think that the history of ideas is really important and useful and interesting and sometimes we misread philosophers because we don't understand them in context properly. And that applies equally to some, some quite often the narrow-mindedness about the availability of interesting work outside of European traditions. I'm as bad as anybody. I couldn't tell you anything useful about Chinese philosophy. But I know that it's there, and I know it's important, and I would like to know more about it. So I think we can be very... Uh, there's a a sort of heuristic involved in saying, right, well, this is my problem, and this is what I am going to work on. And there might be other things going on elsewhere that are just as important, but I can't take on too much. I understand that. That makes sense. But the rather aggressive way in which some people try to demarcate philosophy. This is philosophy, and that isn't, and I'll have nothing to do with that, and the people that do that aren't real philosophers. just annoys me. It's just stupid. And I have to ask you, um, how often are you mistaken for the former leasing of the Verve? When I first joined Twitter, I picked up a lot of followers who just assumed I had to be the person I refer to as the other Richard Ashcroft. (laughs) Um, When I first joined the internet, which was about 10, 15 years before that, I I searched for the existence of other Richard Ashcrofts. And it turns out there are quite a number. Uh, And I once got uh, a letter from a researcher in Egypt who wanted to collaborate with me on a project on dyslexia. And I had to say, well, I don't know anything about dyslexia. And then I realised that he thought I was a professor called Richard Ashcroft, who's an educational psychologist who works at a US university. I was once confused with a historian of political thought who writes about John Locke called Richard Ashcroft. And I, some terribly distinguished professor said, oh, you're Richard Ashcroft. I've read your work. You're so important. And at this point, I hadn't published anything, so I was slightly bemused. And the funny thing is about the, the other Richard Ashcroft is that he has a house which is not that far away from where I live. And so sometimes when my post hasn't been delivered and I have to collect it from the sorting office, I go to the sorting office and they say, ah, yes, the other one was in the other day. So so there we are. One of these days we're going to meet, and he's two years younger than me, um, so I think I should get a royalty on all his sales. (laughs) So once upon a time... I was on the University Ethics Committee at Cambridge University because they needed an external member. And imagine my delight when I discovered that one of the other members of the University Ethics Committee was Keith Richards. Yeah, go on. Who turns out to be the Professor of Geography at the University of Cambridge and not the guitarist of the Rolling Stones. So anyway, they had the most rock and roll ethics committee in the world. You've been listening to Out of the Vat 
a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.